0: Welcome in to the 48 Minutes Podcast on Believe, presented by Bet Online. I'm Ross Geiger, joined alongside Bruce Bernstein of Pure Hoops Media, World B, Michael Freer, and our special guest, Dave Wool. This is episode number 81, and it's a very special one, as tonight's episode officially kicks off our second year of the podcast, as our debut episode took place on December 16th, 2022. I know I speak for all of us, when I say that we surely have appreciated all our loyal listeners' support throughout the first year of the show, and we're committed to continuing to move it onward and upward this next year. And one of the ways we stay committed to do that is by having on incredible guests. We'd like to thank all our amazing guests that joined us this past year, and we were fortunate enough to have on so many intelligent and talented basketball experts that the list is too long to, to thank each person individually. But we do have one of those amazing guests back with us here tonight. I'll let Bruce give him a proper introduction in a minute, but first, all the major sports are in action this week with the college football playoffs ready to kick off. BetOnline is your number one destination for all your sports wagering info, including news for pro football, the NBA, upcoming fights, and NHL games this season. Head to the website today to get in on the action and see all the updated odds for the week. Remember to use our promo code Believe—that that is B-L-E-A-V, to read to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet online, where the game starts. And tonight, Bruce, I'll start with you telling us a little bit more about our guest here tonight.
1: You know, guys, in baseball, a five-tool player is the gold standard. And for those who know baseball history, someone like Willie Mays comes to mind. Well, Dave Wool, our guest tonight, is no Willie Mays, but he is a five-tool player in the basketball world. He played in the NBA for seven seasons. He was an assistant coach for the Showtime Lakers, and he got a chip in 1985. He was a head coach for the New Jersey Nets for parts of three seasons in the late 80s. He was assistant GM in Boston when the Celtics acquired Kevin Garnett and Ray Allen in 2007, and he was most recently the general manager of the LA Clippers. Jerry West called him a pest 40 years ago, and Dave's been smiling about that ever since. Welcome, Dave. So uh, were you the Patrick Beverly of your era?
2: <laughs> no, I wouldn't I wouldn't put it that way, Bruce, but you know, you try and remember compliments about your career, especially when you had a journeyman career kind of like mine. And Jerry and I were sitting there my first year with the Lakers, and Jerry used to get in the office early. I was the first coach in the office. And one time we were sitting there and he goes, Hey, you know, I remember you as a player. You were really a pest on defense. <laughs> And usually when someone associates pest with you, you don't take it as a compliment. But me, I I thought that was the best compliment I've ever had.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the best compliment as a defender. I mean, no one wants you to be guarding him. So uh, that's high praise there from the logo man himself. Now, Dave, obviously, as Bruce just alluded to, you were the general manager of the Los Angeles Clippers. So why not start with them? They have been on fire here recently and seem to have found their stride with their new superstar core. Eight and two in their last ten games. Um, what are your thoughts on how this team is now constructed with James Harden on board? And are you a believer in this team?
2: Well, I, I think if you look over the last couple of years, the the biggest thing that everybody thought was this was a championship type team, and the injuries just really destroyed them. You know, they had. BG and Kawhi were in and out of the lineup or missed, uh, you know, big portions of the lineup. Um, I think adding Harden really helps that because, you know, Paul George has missed a couple games. They didn't seem to miss a beat. Kawhi's been healthy all year so far, playing kind of like the Kawhi we saw with the Spurs almost. So I think this is a team that's going to continue to, you know, have a pretty good vibe about them. Uh, One of the things I love that doesn't get mentioned as much is, You know, when Harden gets traded, Russell Westbrook has to go to the bench. Okay. Ty decides he's got to go to the bench. You haven't heard a peep out of Russell in terms of a complaint of going from starter to the bench. And I think it's one of the things that people don't appreciate about Westbrook. Look, you can argue about his skill set, doesn't shoot threes well, turnovers or whatever. You can never argue that he is not a competitor, that every time out on the floor, he plays his ass off. He brings energy. He brings that toughness vibe. And going to the bench, he's going to play his, you know, 15 to 20 minutes and bring that um, to the floor every night. And if Harden or one of the other guys does get hurt again, you know, you've got a veteran who can fill in. So I really like what they're doing. And I think Ty Lu is just a terrific coach. I think he's got enormous respect from the players. And I think he's the kind of guy that's going to be able to figure out. What my best lineups are eventually, because they're still trying to figure things out. I have one caveat that I think doesn't get cleared up till after the All Star break. Um, Harden, when he was with Philadelphia last season, Philly was playing really well, and when the All Star break came and Harden didn't make the All Star team, you know, he was more of a facilitator with Philly than the main score. He got upset, and I remember him telling Doc, and there were some quotes uh, in the past that. He wanted more shots now because he, he thought that was how to get the recognition back. So when the all-star comes around this year, I don't think Harden's going to get there. He's not going to be an all-star, but will it change his mindset? And, oh, I need more shots now. They're not recognizing me as an all-star anymore. Or will he just decide, you know, the title is really important and I'm still going to play the way we've been winning. That's, that's the one thing that I think once you get past that point, you'll know for sure. And health. Those are the two things that, other than that, I think they got as good a shot as any of the top teams you talk about.
1: You know, I didn't like the Harden acquisition. I said so a number of times for reasons that we haven't seen yet. Mainly that, you know, that that core is old, injury prone. And I was concerned that, you know, adding a guy like that who is a ball stopper uh, and has, you know, 34 years old or close to it. Um, but I have to admit so far, I mean, I'm completely wrong. I mean, they're on their way to putting about 150 points on Indiana on Monday night, which will be their eighth straight win. And it'll also be 14 out of their last 17. And, you know, James definitely deserves a ton of the credit, you know, for doing exactly what you said a moment ago, playing like he did in Philly last season, scoring less and doing better playmaking. But the age and injury history on this team still worries me moving forward, Dave.
2: Yeah, I think the other thing is they've got a really tough schedule coming up over about the next eight or 10 games. I think they've got a road trip with uh, Indiana, Dallas, OKC. Then they've got Boston and I think the Heat at home and then they go out again. I think they've got a Phoenix twice, a couple other good teams. So I think the next eight or 10 games will really um, give you a little more proof of, hey, is this team for real or is this team a team that's, you know, they'll be in the playoffs, but are they a championship quality team?
3: I think what you're seeing here, too, with the Clippers, are, you're seeing the best of everything they can be. They can they proved tonight they can outscore anybody in the league, uh, albeit Indiana's not the greatest defensive team of all time. We know that. But they're also – all those players on there, they're two best players, Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, are two of the best defenders in the league. Yeah. And the fact that Kawhi is playing – to me right now, you list five players for MVP, he's got to be one of them. To me, right now, he's he's just playing at an, really another level. Playing every game, I gave him a hard time last year. I talked about how load management would be defining his career going forward, and he's proven right now. Obviously, he's got an opt out at, at the end of the season, so I'm sure he's motivated with uh, with the ability to show everybody, hey, I can play every day. You give me the money, I'll be there every day. I think that's part of James Harden's motivation too, to be honest. Is he wants a nice big deal at the end of this rainbow of a season. So I think he wants to uh, show everybody he can be the kind of player uh, that isn't going to be a problem. Isn't going to you know, help lead. Like you said, Dave, one of the contenders in the,
2: in the West. And yeah, I think, and, you know, with the Clippers again, it's going to be where are they when playoff time comes? Are they injured? Are they healthy? Are they on a little roll? Has Harden stayed in the role that that serves him really well and, and been a team player without causing any problems? Because, you know, if you look at his last couple teams, there's always been something that comes up that James is not happy with uh, or he, you know, he changes kind of the team rules. He's not on the flight or something else. So if, if he's really pointed in the right direction mentally, too, I think that's a big plus for this team.
0: And Dave, speaking of happiness or lack thereof, being our former general manager on the show, what do you think happens with a guy like P.J. Tucker? He comes over in the Philadelphia deal. He's not seen the floor to the extent uh, that rookie Kobe Brown gets the call over P.J. off the bench for Coach Lou. Obviously, he's not happy about not having that defined role. And he could certainly help a lot of playoff teams out there. So at this stage in his career, do you see P.J. Tucker more of a buyout guy or someone they can trade?
2: Yeah, it's an interesting question, Ross, because I think both those options might be might be there. The only thing I don't like and I've never liked this in a a player is if you're unhappy about your minutes, your role, go talk with the coach, do it privately you know, because the last thing you would like is the coach talking publicly about things he doesn't like about your game or your role or your minutes on the floor. So I would have liked PJ to do that and say to Ty, hey, look, if you're not going to use me, see if you can move me somewhere, because I really would like to play, you know, my contracts up or whatever. So I don't know how that'll shake up. But I I don't think PJ has never been a guy that's caused a lot of problems. Maybe he just put that out there. So they're aware he's not happy. You know, sometimes players think the squeaky wheel gets the grease. I don't think it's going to work on this team. But he might also have a game where they use him because of an injury or fouls, and he comes in and does a great job defensively, which which he can do. And all of a sudden, he's finding some minutes on this roster. So I think this, this his situation remains to be seen as we get closer to the trade deadline.
1: Just backing up a half second real quick on Kawhi. I mean, he's he's been 100% this year, every game he's played. And I, you know, I mean, he's due for a DNP soon. I vote for this Saturday when the Celtics are in town for his first <laughs> DNP of the season. Hopefully, Ty, you know, is listening to the show. Anyway, <laughs> speaking of Ty, okay, you talked about the Westbrook situation and how Russell has handled a reduced role well. I gotta believe that that Ty Lu had a really good talk with him and probably said mm-hmm. something along these lines. Your role's reduced. But other than getting pissed at a fan lately, he hasn't really made a peep. So I think Ty probably said, "Look, these guys always get injured on this team. Your minutes going to increase at some point along the way. Just be ready." And I'm guessing Ty probably had that conversation with him. Do you feel something like that took place to help Russell sort of ease into a better mental state about this role?
2: Yeah, I, I Ty Ty's a great communicator and. Uh, The example I would use, too, is when Steve Kerr had to do that with Iguodala. You know, Iguodala had been a starter. They get him. He finally, you know, tells him, hey, I really need you off the bench. I think that's how we can win a title. I'm sure Ty had something similar with Russell. And I think Russell's professionalism for Ty was something that was going to allow him to listen to that conversation from Ty. I think the one thing Russell loves to do is compete and win. Um, You know, he's had great stats throughout his career, but he's never gotten that championship trophy. And he knows he's getting closer to the end than the beginning. So I I would think Ty would have that. And knowing Ty, I would think he would have it without making it public. You know, he wouldn't say, oh, I had a big talk with Russell today to tell him why I want him in this role. Because I don't know if Russell needed that kind of public thing. I think Ty's just going to have Russell in that role. And Russell, I think, will produce well enough in that role that everybody will look on it as the year goes on and say, hey, that was really a good move.
3: Yeah. But by the way, I, the story that I've, I've heard over the last few weeks was it was Russell Westbrook that went to coach Lou and suggested he come off the bench, which speaks to your point, Dave, about him being very unselfish. And uh, the praise that he's gotten from the team for that move is really going over well. And it again, speaks to your point about these guys being more of a team and, and Russell being a, a, a pretty unselfish player in that regard. And, uh, I mentioned last week that I don't know of any player in recent memory that's turned his reputation around in less than a year, more so than Russell Westbrook, going from where his reputation was with the Lakers when he left the Lakers to where it is right now. It's really a a big
2: 180. Yeah, I always root for guys like Westbrook because I just think, you know, the the pure parts of the game – where you're supposed to go out and compete. You're supposed to compete as a team player. You want your team to win and you try and contribute in any way you can to get a win every night. I think, I think Russell really exemplifies those things. And you, again, you can debate his skills because you know, he has weaknesses like everybody else, but um, I, I love the fact that he's in a situation now where he can just come off the bench. He knows his role. They've made it pretty clear. There's no guesswork involved. And the other players now know that, okay, their roles are pretty set in the starting lineup, you know, by and large. So I, I think Ty and Russell came to a great agreement and I think it, it had a good effect, a positive effect on the rest of the guys too, in terms of just more respect for Russell.
0: Now, Dave, as we move into our second quarter here, let's talk about another guy that plays with a lot of passion. That is Draymond Green of the Golden State Warriors. Uh, obviously, he recently had another incident um, against the Phoenix Suns with Yusuf Nurkic, where he hit him in the face. Now he's out indefinitely seeking some help. You know, what's your thoughts on, on just this entire situation, this entire season with Draymond, with all the antics that we've seen? We saw the chokehold with Gobert. Uh, it just seems to never stop. I mean, from, from your perspective, I mean, is there hope in Golden
2: State? Well, let's let's look at Draymond for a second. Okay, You, you have to understand that Draymond is an emotional player. His play is always going to ride a, an emotional line that he goes up and down a little bit on. And you can't take that away from him and expect him to be the same kind of player. Um, But at the same time, what he hasn't been able to do, and it's gotten worse, is he hasn't been able to channel his emotions into a positive response on the floor. It always goes the other way to a negative response. And even looking at the, the, the last one he had with Nurkic, you know, he's trying to post up Nurkic, but Nurkic isn't really defending him aggressively or anything like that. And Draymond's been around, what, a dozen years, and he knows anytime you swing an arm like he did and you hit somebody in the head and the referee's right there because you're on the baseline, the ref's calling the foul on you. So this was not, well, I was trying to sneak a foul in, you know, and fake the ref out. That, that, that excuse to me didn't, didn't hold any water. So if you can't change him as an emotional player, you have to be able to try and get him to understand how he hurts the team when the emotions go awry. And I was talking with Bruce about, you know, I, I've been around some other guys who were emotional players. In fact, we had the guy in Boston, KG. KG is probably the most emotional player that has ever existed in the NBA for that long a period of time. I mean, not only trash talking, but talking to himself, talking to his teammates, the refs, banging his head on the stanchion if he made a mistake. But the thing with KG is he always had control of it. When he, did, when he needed not to be emotional, when he needed not to carry it that step further that gets you ejected or two techs or hurts your team he could always pull it back and i gave him some other advan- uh, you know examples too it was like norm van leer who was playing in my time norm was incredibly an emotional player i was telling bruce that one time they used to have the paddles on the scores table one had personal fouls on it one had you know the team fouls in different colors Norm got so upset with an official's call that he ran down the scores table, throwing paddles all (laughs) off the table, throwing the records off the table. And Jerry Sloan had to come get him and grab him. But that wasn't how Norm played emotionally. There was there was that incident, you know, but he played with this fiery, emotional thing that you knew it was not going to be fun playing against him every day. But he had control of it. And the one I think Bruce likes the best is Cowan's. You know, Dave was an emotional player from day one, but he was another guy that could control that. He turned up the flame, but it never turned got the barn on fire. And I, there's a great example when um, I was with Houston and we were playing uh, the Celtics and um, Collins got hit by Newland or something and the ref didn't call a foul. And Cowens was really ticked and Mike got the ball and was heading down the other way on the court. Cowan's chased him down and literally launched into the air and clipped him like a football block. He just wiped Mike's legs out from under him. Dave gets up and he looks at the official and he goes, that's an effing foul. Wow. And, and it was like loss wow. lost emotion, but it, it was it was instructive in Cowan's mind. It wasn't like he's, he'd lost his mind. He wanted the official. No, you missed the one on me. That's a foul and and so i think there's guys that have really been capable players and elite players you know pa- patrick beverly probably falls in there also where their emotions carry them and teams need emotional players i thought the golden state warriors needed the emotions that draymond brings but they don't need the emotions when they cross the line and hurt the team and that's his challenge And I said to Bruce, I think I I don't even know if an intervention, I know they said he's going to get some help over the next couple of weeks. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see what comes out of that. But maybe you get KG, maybe you get a bunch of the guys who are really emotional players, and you go grab Draymond and go, come on, man, we're going in here. We got some pizza, we got some drinks, we're going to have an an intervention. We're not letting you out to you understand how you're hurting your team. And you can be emotional, but you got to turn it. The other way, you got to be able to turn it off when you know it's going to hurt your team because you'd love to see him if he could manage that that pivot to using it in a positive way more often.
1: I will always blame him for getting suspended during the 2016 finals because I really truly believe that had he not been suspended for game five, the Warriors would have won that championship over Cleveland and that would have given them five championships as opposed to four. So I guess my question, I mean, given how many years this has gone back now, he's going to turn 34 years old in Mar- March. Yes or no? Do you think an older player like him can change his tactics at this stage of his career?
2: You know, I, I the only thing I don't know about Draymond, because I don't really know him at all, is I don't know what fuels that thing. Is he just trying to help his team and he thinks he can push it to a certain level but he doesn't realize he's already gone past that level. He's already crossed the line, but he thinks he's smart enough to play that little game. You know, I think I looked the other day, he's gotten like 160 or 70 technicals in his career. He's got, I don't know how many ejections and suspensions. I mean, it's, it's crazy. It's off the chart. So the question for me is, look, how much longer do you want to play? Do you want to help your team? Do you want to win more championships? And if so, He's a smart enough player because you see him off the court, talkative guy, smart guy. He's in control. He's not like just ranting and raving. How bad do you want to change at this at this level? Or do you just want to go out as a guy that cost your team a couple championships? Plus, I don't know what the peer pressure will be. You know, I mean, he's on a team. Yeah. They've won championships together. What are, what are Steph telling them behind the scenes? We know what Steve's telling them. What's Clay telling them? What's Looney telling them? What are some of the guys that have been with him? You know what are they telling them? Because we probably won't find that out for a while.
0: Now, Dave, we're obviously uh, taping this as of Monday night, but uh, tomorrow night's going to be a special night in Memphis. Uh, John Morant makes his return to the court with the Grizzlies. Uh, what's your overall thought on how that might be for that group? Obviously, they got off to a pretty bad start w- without their floor general. Uh, but do you think this is going to be uh, take a few games for them? to get adjusted to having job ja back with the team?
2: I think what'll be interesting to watch is how does job ja come out? Does he, If he's probably been shooting around or doing a lot of stuff during the time off. So, you know, his conditioning might be decent and everything. Does he, does he try to do way too much to take over a game or something, or does he try and ease himself in? And he's kind of a little passive. He's, he's trying to set up his teammates. He's trying to work on good defense. It'll be interesting to see what, what his approach is, um, yep. I don't know. What what friendships on the team or things he's he's got to mend or show that hey, I'm back, but I'm in a better space. You know, I've learned a lot through this, um, the therapy I've gone through, and all the other stuff. So I don't know that you'll see something that's going to continue from game one. It'll be interesting how he eases himself into the first next two weeks. I think to see where he is. Um, both physically and and mentally, you know, in a game. Does he argue with refs? Does he does he just kind of go play? And, um, you know, how does he deal with his teammates if things aren't going well on the court? Does he get look like he's down? Is he upset? So uh, I'm looking forward to seeing how he reacts.
3: You know, one of the problems with the Grizzly situation where it is, is They've gotten as ross mentioned they've gotten off to such a terrible start now without not just him as we mentioned you know earlier this season Steven Adams being out for the year is a real right. blow um I mean they're one of the worst shooting teams in the league John Morant's not necessarily going to improve on that too much with his uh that's one of his uh limitations if you will right. it, for all his greatness do you think as I looked at the standings, you know they're outside they're far outside the even the play in field at this point and there's really only one team you could realistically that being the Rockets who are in the field, they could realistically uh see them overtaking because the Suns are right. also in the play in field, the Lakers and you know and the New Orleans Pelicans who aren't going anywhere at the moment, I don't think. Do you, how much is where they fact where they are right now in the standings, do you think that impacts uh how they're gonna play the rest of the year with John Moran? as far as I guess what I'm saying is they really don't have a shot uh, of making that much ground up to seven and a half games behind the Rockets. That's a lot to make up in the NBA. What's their situation? The standings factor in to uh, have what we're going to see the rest of the year.
2: Yeah. I think if you, if over the next couple of weeks, you know, they're still struggling or they're falling further behind, it'll be interesting to see what the coach and management want to do. Do we just kind of, Toss this year off, and we're going to work the rest of this year on not just the basketball things on the court, but the in, the intangible things in terms of team chemistry, our culture, you know, our work ethic, and 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 then we're going to you know um, look at next year as the year where Jaw's back. We're starting from scratch. We're ready to go. All this is behind us. Especially if Jaw's able to show, you know, that the, the therapy has really helped him, and he, now the challenge for him will be the off season what's going on in the off season. You know, if, if he's at a club again, and you know, he's swirling anything around other than a, you know, a lime soda, you know, we're going to, we're going to know the therapy didn't help, but that may be over the next couple of um, weeks, if they fall further behind and there's really no chance to get back in the play and Hey, let's just play hard every game. Here's our, here's our three things we're focusing on every game. And, you know, we're going to just kind of tighten it, our group and work towards uh, coming back next year and, and, and taking names.
0: That's a good point there, Dave. I, I really haven't – that thought hasn't crossed my mind yet. But because he was suspended for 25 games, he hasn't traveled with the team. and Likely hasn't traveled at all. I'm sure he's just staying home in Memphis for the most part, trying to stay out of the news. But he's going to have those temptations when he hits the road. So that's definitely going to be uh, quite mm-hmm. interesting once he starts traveling on road trips. So uh, we'll have to keep an eye on that.
2: Well, I think the other thing, too, from, from just news reports, when he used to go into a city – some of his friends would meet him there, you know, on the road. So the question with the therapy he got is, hey, your friends don't come on the road anymore. Or are they going to let them come on the road? Because it'd be so much better, I guess, if he went out with his teammates, you know, rather than his friends on the road, or he didn't go out as much, or the security is always going with him. So I think a lot of those things will reveal themselves over the next couple weeks and certainly in the summer you know, if there are any incidents, you know, that, that are going to be negatively uh, held against them, as opposed to a positive improvement. So it's going to be something to focus on, I think, in the standings to where are they gaining ground or are they falling back further?
0: Great points there. And with that, we've reached our halftime buzzer. So we're going to take a quick break and come back with you for the second half. All right, we're back with the start of the third quarter. In this segment, we're going to call stock up and stock down. So let's go ahead and start out with our two stock up teams. And we're going to start with the Minnesota Timberwolves, who are 8-2 and two in their last 10 games, atop of the Western Conference standings, holding the best point differential in the West at plus seven, 7.8 points per game. Uh, Dave, what can you tell, tell us about one of your former ball clubs and, and the Wolves and their hot start this year?
2: Well, I can tell you they were better than the team I was with when I was in Minnesota. <laughs> I, I think the challenge for them is continually trying to get better at a lot of the little things. Look, they've got a, a great player in Edwards. They, you know, the 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 two big guys working together. You know, one's guy's going to focus more on defense. Carl Anthony Towns on offense. That seems to be working. Um, you know, I, I would like to see them acquire a little more depth. And the biggest thing for them is the weight of expectations now, because they haven't won a title. They haven't been in the finals. They're really not playoff tested in terms of, you know, going further and further. So the question will be, as we get closer to the playoffs, if they're one of those top seeds in the West or even the top seed, you know, how are they handling the pressure? How are they handling Okay, your expectations are we expect you to get to the Western finals or the the NBA finals. And and for a team that's never been there, that's a that's a big weight. And so it'll be fun to watch, you know, how they how they handle that as they get closer and closer uh, to the playoffs.
1: You know, Dave, one of the things I really like about that team, uh, besides their three solid bigs, uh, I know that these guys always expect me to say Naz Reed whenever we do a show, so <laughs> Naz Reed. But what I really like about that team is that they seem to have like a perfect sort of mix of youth, kind of middle-of-the-career guys, and an older floor general like Mike Connolly, who really is like a, a, a calm, like a coach on the floor, so to speak. Uh, how important do you think a guy like Connolly, even though his numbers are not what they were at one point, how how important do you think he's been in say the development of Anthony Edwards and and even Reed to a lesser extent
2: you know i i think veterans are so important when they're veterans that can that can play or have that resume it's like boston with um uh, D- drew you know and yep. because he's someone that's been through things and so conley can whisper in edwards ear he can they watch how you know the young guys can watch how some veterans like conley How does he comport himself on the road? How does he prepare on the road? How does he handle a pressure situation? How does he deal with the refs when he gets a bad call? Because a lot of those things are growing points for the young guys because you can't lose your head in playoff games. It just does. there's no benefit to it. And it's similar to what I think Houston has tried to do with some of their team. You know, they brought in Van Vliet. They got Brooks. They, they brought in more guys that are veteran guys, not just for their skills on the court, but also to set an example of toughness and mental resiliency and how you approach your craft. So I think this could have big benefits for Minnesota, especially, like I said, as they get closer to the playoffs. Mike's been through all this. You know, He he knows what the playoff pressure is. He knows the uh, the things the media is going to put on top of you and, and, and ask for. Um, so I, I think it's a real benefit to have a guy like that in your ear when you're a guy like Edwards or any of the other guys who are still the young guys on that team.
0: Now, Dave, let's stay out West here and focus in on the second team out West in the standings. Now that's the Oklahoma city thunder. They are six and four in the last 10 and not surprisingly hold the second best point differential out West at plus 6.8. Now, my first question for you, having seen this team, what's your impression on rookie Chet
2: Holgram? Uh, I like him. You know, he's got uh, the evolution of sort of the the center, power forward, whatever you want to call him over the last few years. You know, you look at, you know, you've got Nokic or Jokic. You've got uh, Adebayo. You've got Embiid. Draymond plays center. I'm sure I'm missing a name in there. The young kid Sangoon from, from Houston where you can run plays through him. That position is really, you know, evolving. And I think Holmgren is going to be one of those guys that can fit into that new type of big guy. He can shoot threes, he can block shots, you know, he can play anywhere you want him and as a pick and roll, roll guy. So I really love that. And we had Shea obviously with the Clippers. I don't know that anybody there saw him get to this level that quickly, but um, they've got, they've got just a great load of young players. And in fact, I think, you know, five years from now, the the draft, maybe just every pick's going to be involved with Sam Presti. I don't know. He's got 19 first round picks and 400 second round picks. It's just going to be, let's go to Sam for a comment on this pick because he was involved with it. You know, um, So I think their future is among the brightest of, of the teams and they're playing terrific now. So I, I think that's a team that's always going to be fun to watch in the playoffs going forward, especially this year.
1: You know, Shea Gilgis Alexander, I mean, really, like you said, you had him back when he was, you know, a rookie or a second year player, or whatever. Um, he's just a bucket, man. I mean, you know, he hit he had the game winning shot in their previous game, just a cold blooded, you know, bucket with time, pretty much running off, you know, running out. I mean, it's like, you know, when you see a guy like that and, a, and an up and coming team with some of these other young guys like Josh Giddy, and you mentioned Holmgren and Jalen uh Jalen Williams. Uh, I mean, I would love to be an OKC fan these days.
2: Yeah, I just I just think, too, with all the draft picks Sam has now, he's not going to draft OKC players with those 19 first round picks over the next seven rounds. But he's going to look at it, be able to look at his team and say, OK, who are my who are my all stars? Who are my couple all stars? Who are my top starters? Who are my? you know, on the cusp starters that give me some things I don't get from anybody else, maybe on the defensive end, like a Dort gives. And then he's going to be able to look at his bench and say, okay, I need this, I need that. And he's going to be able to use a lot of those picks to pick up talent through the draft, not by necessarily drafting that player, but by throwing two or three picks into into something. And he's going to be able to protect himself, I think, for injuries, especially if it's a long-term injury. And, you know, he's really a bright guy. I, I just think their future um, it's hard to find a weakness in it because they've got young stars right now that are just even approaching their prime. I don't even know if they're, they're in their prime yet. I think Shea might be 24 or 5. You know, Holgram's young. The other kids are all young. I mean, uh, they're a team that I think is fun to watch now. And the, the interesting thing about Shea, when we had him with the Clippers and watched them a lot at Kentucky, I remember thinking, I just thought he was going to be a great point guard. I didn't see the score in him that he's scoring now because he wasn't that aggressive. And what I loved was the after he left the Clippers, he really started to become, and maybe they uh, wanted him to do it more. He just became more aggressive looking for a shot. And now all of a sudden you saw the blossoming of this guy that's, you know, he's first team All-NBA, you know, and he's putting 30 points a game, and yet he's still an unselfish player, you know, cold-blooded competitor, but a nice kid. You know, I I just think uh, their team's fun to watch.
3: Now, Dave, you mentioned... Oh, oh, go okay. ahead. Go ahead, World B. I would just say one one thing to your point, Dave. About Shea, that's so great is he still hasn't developed a consistent perimeter shot yet. Yeah. Yet he leads the league by a wide margin, I believe, in drives per game. He's still aggressive and he's still able to get his his uh, points. One thing about the uh, the Thunder that really should be uh, mentioned going forward, they are one of the complete teams in this league. They're one of three teams who are top 10 in offensive and defensive efficiency. And the other two are Boston and Philadelphia who were there last year. So they're traditionally up there, but to have the Thunder be one of those teams is really a testament to the talent that they have right now.
2: And I think one of the interesting things I think Sam Presti has done, and and I assume Sam did it on purpose because I don't know that Sam doesn't do anything that isn't on purpose, um, is – he hasn't put a lot of weight on them. Oh, we got to be in the, the the finals this year, or the the finals of the West, or we got to get to the second round. And so to me, they're a little different than Minnesota because Minnesota, I think for, and this is just me, I sense more weight on them for the expectations. I don't, I don't know why I don't have a good reason for you. I think Sam would be fine if they just, you know, played hard in the playoffs and got maybe a little better. Maybe they won one more game in whatever round because I think he sees the future. They have so many assets that I don't think he's necessarily in a rush. Like the owners haven't said, Sam, if these guys aren't in the you know, the Western Conference finals in another year, we're going to have to make some big changes. And so uh, it's going to be interesting from a player standpoint. You know, they demand a lot. They want you to be competitive. That team's been competitive. Um, it's going to be interesting in this playoffs, watching both Minnesota and OKC to me from a more of a how are they responding to the pressure of the playoffs?
0: I think that go bear trade in Minnesota is really what kind of turned up the pressure there. Obviously, wanting to make sure that one was executed and obviously showing uh, some positive light in Minnesota uh, with, with his presence down low with Kat. But uh, one quick question at the end here. You, you mentioned all the young players on the Oklahoma City Thunder. Uh, are we leaving it to Sam Presti to kind of find the Shohei Otani loophole to try to keep <laughs> that core together? Yeah. I feel like Uh, he's the guy.
2: It'll be interesting the first NBA player that says he wants to defer ninety-eight percent of his salary. (laughs) Um, I don't know how many guys are raising that hand, raising their hand, go, me, me, I'll be first. So, but they all love the seven hundred million figure or six hundred, whatever it was, you know. I think they all like that number. So
0: Awesome. Well, let's uh, let's turn our attention now to the teams that have their stock down at this time. And uh, both of them have Monty Williams ties. So let's go ahead and start out with his former team, the Phoenix Suns. They're they're four and six in their last 10. Do you contribute their recent struggles as an adjustment period with Bradley Beal back in the lineup?
2: I I think that's part of it. And, you know, I I think, again, you've got a new coach, um, new system um, new roles, new, you know, new ways of looking at things offensively and defensively. I don't know. I don't know. I, you'd have to ask really, you'd have to be in that locker room and hear what the players are talking about, because they're certainly, they certainly got a lot of talent. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, do they miss Aiden in the middle? Do they, you know, is Yerkic the right guy in the middle for them? Do they need a guy that you could go through, you know, like they do, like we talk about with Jokic or Sengun or Adebayo, you know, a different kind of you know, speed and Draymond, like if you put Draymond on that, on that team as a center, how does that change them or at a or any of the other two guys? So are they still looking to, to find another player that fits? And certainly I think you have to make an adjustment when you have Beal come back. Cause you know, Beal Durant and, and Booker, they're all looking to shoot the ball. You know, that's how they've made their living. So are they, are they kind of hesitating a little bit? Oh, Bradley hasn't gotten a shot in the last three times down. I'm going to pass up my shot and get him a shot. So, you know, it's still early enough in the season, I think, for them to kind of get on the same page.
1: You know, the Beal trade to me was a really big gamble. You know, they gave up an awful lot to get him, and it's not like he hasn't had some injuries in the past prior to this. Did they just give up way too much for this guy who has barely played in the first quarter of the season?
2: Well, you know, you could. I guess you could. I guess you could look at the Clippers the same way you know, they got PG and they got Kawhi and then PG and Kawhi have been hurt the last three years and they gave up, you know, a ton to get those guys, but you try and weigh those risks, you know, okay, we're giving up a lot. Here's where we're getting back. What could go wrong? Okay. Well, maybe they find a, a great star out of the picks we gave up. Okay. But we're in a, we're in a situation where we want to win a title. We can't, we can't wait another five, six, seven, eight years for that title. And and so, you know, you're hoping the guys stay healthy. We do everything we can. And, and I think they're, they're thinking that maybe Beal has a good stretch. He's healthier. We now have three scorers. Um, we're always going to be able to put two of those three on the court together. So we shouldn't have any offensive lulls because that's, that's a big thing sometimes when you only have two guys. So, yeah, right now it isn't working out. If it doesn't work out the whole year, there's going to be a lot of second guessing probably from, from their side.
3: Dave, you meant you're talking about the chemistry and how working together. Obviously, Bradley Beal finally comes back and he gets hurt in the next game. He, I think the the big three for them have only been on the court together. I think it's something like 24 minutes all yeah. year. Um, and he's going to miss a few more weeks. It sounds like at least. At what point? How much time do you think they need to get that chemistry? together to make it work. How obviously you like a whole season, you like to start at the beginning, you like to start training camp. That's not happening. Right. At what point does it become too late for or does it not become too late? Can can they do it in a month?
2: Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. And you know, and I don't know if there's a set thing, but if if I was a coach for that team, I'd like to have 20 to 25 games for them to be healthy together because I'd like to figure out the lineups I want with them, I'd like to figure out, you know, w- when I take two guys out or one guy out, who do I bring in to fit that lineup on the floor? So I'm I'm looking at my top eight or nine guys to juggle with those three once I see those three are figuring out how to play. So, you know, you're talking beginning of, I don't know, beginning of March, very end of February probably gives you 20 games, maybe a little more because uh, the season ends about mid-April or so. So I think if you're down to where they're not getting much time together or haven't played much together and you only got eight or ten games left, I think it's tough.
0: Now the other team that uh, I want to focus on with Monty Williams is his current team, Dave. That's the Detroit Pistons. And no need to tell you the record in the last ten. How about we just go with their current 23-game losing streak? Um, and my question to you is you know, probably going to give you nightmares here, but if you were the Pistons' general manager at this time, what are you looking to do, if anything?
2: Well, I I think I I know Monty very well. Monty's a friend. And um, I I kind of look at I was uh, an assistant coach the first year of the Miami Heat and we lost. And and I'll tell you a funny story. Uh, Ronnie Rothstein was the the head coach there. I was one of his assistants and, and Tony Fiorentino was another assistant. And we went on a coach's retreat and this is Ronnie's first head coaching job. He was Chuck Daly's assistant, you know, great Detroit team. And and Ronnie's convinced that, you know, he's ready for this and he's got all the learned things he learned from Chuck. So we, we go on this retreat. And as we're about to leave the retreat, we have the little pocket schedules we're looking at. And Tony says, hey, let's let's look at the schedule and see how many games we're going to win. And so Tony looks and Ronnie looks and I'm just sitting there kind of holding the pocket schedule in my hand and. And Tony goes, all right, I got 34 wins. And he looks at Ronnie, how many you got? And Ronnie goes, I got 36. This is our first year as an expansion team, and we're in the West. They put us in the West, okay? So Ronnie turns to me and he goes, what do you got? I said, Ronnie, if you win 17 games, you're going to be coach of the year. And they said, what are you, <laughs> kidding me? Well, we lost our first 17 games in a row. And then we won a couple, and then we lost, like I think, 15 in a row. I mean, we were like 3 and 30 something. So I can, I can feel what Monty's going through. I know the losing just, like, you have to almost be perfect. They've got a lot of young guys that are developing. They had a couple injuries, I think, to Bogdanovich and a couple other shooters that might have opened up the floor a little more for him. I think the thing with Monty is he's the right guy to get through this because he's going to keep teaching. He's going to keep demanding. He's not a yeller, screamer. And if I'm the GM... Unless I see something desperately bad, and I'm not going to judge it just by the losses, because a part of it's, are they professional? Are they working hard? Are they learning? Is there chemistry here? Are they starting to find an identity or a culture? I'm backing Monty. I'm backing him to the hilt. When I was with Doc, um, I got into the assistant GM, like Bruce said, the year we won the title. But the year before, Doc was in a three-year plan with Danny Ainge to rebuild the Celtics to a championship team. And now we're in year three and it's not going well and doc lost i think 18 games in a row at one point in the season now this is boston this is the celtics you lose 18 games in a row you're never allowed to show your face again in boston you know <laughs> and so the fans want them fired every radio show wants them fired every podcast wants them fired half the owners they had a lot of minority owners they they say now they were behind them 100 percent half of them wanted them fired Danny Ainge does something I've never seen a GM do. Danny basically stands up and goes, hey, stop all this nonsense. Doc is my coach. He's a great coach. He's going to be a great coach for us. I have to get him better players. And it just stopped. They moved on to something else. The following year, we won the title. We had 46 more wins, the greatest improvement a record that has ever been in the NBA. Um, Danny made the right train, trades. Ubuntu became a culture that was unbelievable, but most GMs, when they see a guy losing, they kind of separate themselves because they don't want it like attached to them. Danny said, Hey man, I told you I was in this with you. I'm in this with you. And that's what I think the GM's got to be with Monty.
1: Well, Detroit is just seconds away uh, at this point from losing number 24 in a row. They're at Atlanta on Monday night, down by six with 31 seconds left. So, Right now, their winning percentage is 0.77, okay? Mm. Um, Which, if they continue at this pace, would give them around six wins for the entire season. Now, I don't think they're going to win only six games. But the team is so young. Do they just need to get a couple of older guys in there just to kind of show some of these younger dudes how to do things? I mean, they got three guys on their roster over 30. One of them is Bogdanovich, who plays. The other one's... Don't really play that much. I mean, or do you think they should just like let these guys take their lumps, bottom out, get the number one overall pick again and see where where they can go with it?
2: Well, you know, you can look at OKC as one example. OK, OKC's got a lot of young guys. They they really didn't bring in a ton of veterans or anything to try and teach them. They decided, hey, we're, we're judging. We got some good guys in the draft and everything. We're going to throw them out there. We're going to get a good coach. And we've got this culture here and we think we can grow them in this culture. You can look at, you know, like we talked about um, where you bring in guys like for like Mike Conley um, or you bring in the Van Vliet and the, and the Dylan Brooks for like the Houston team, but you got to bring in the right older guys, the guys that have the right qualities you're trying to show the young guys. You can't bring in the, the older guys who are just in it for themselves and, you know, they just want the money. They're just, it's a pit stop for them before they move on. So that would be the challenge I think for, for Detroit, you've got to make some good decisions, bring in a couple of those guys, keep growing your players, keep demanding, you know, the things that you need to do every day, forget that we lost. And the one thing Monty can do. And I think we tried to do even with the heat back then is you can always watch a game and pull out a bunch of good plays. You did. Not every play was a lousy play, There were some games with the Heat where we played really well, but we played one of the elite teams and we got beat by 25 points. But we went and we played probably to the level of our talent and everything. So you pull out some good plays and you show them a strip of edits of some good plays and you say, so our problem is not that we can't do these plays. Our problem is we can't sustain them. So why can't we sustain them? Because we, we, we've shown each other now that we can do this. So there's a lot of things I think that coaches can try and do to not just not just show all the losing edits and the bad edits. You know, you find ways to find a good minute or two here. Uh, whether the bench came in and, and caught up six points in a rally. You know, whether we, hey, we lost the game, but we cut that fourth quarter lead to, you know, six points instead of 15. And I, And I think that's the challenge for coaching staffs When you're with a losing team, and I just remember, you know, with the heat, sometimes you're just, the losing just eats at you. At one point, Ron Cope, who was a great trainer back there, Ron and I were sitting in front of a whiteboard after practice. And I think he went and he wrote in the corner of the whiteboard, five and 42. We were five and 42 at one point. And uh, the least amount of games won by uh, an expansion team was, I think, 15 we didn't want that record, so we won the 15th game on the last game of the season. And we kept talking to our guys. We're not going to be the worst. We're not going to break that record, you know. So I think a lot of it's going to be the coaches trying to find ways to get guys excited about things they're doing, even though you're losing. You're looking for smaller pieces of a game in a, in a timeout. Hey, look, there's four minutes left in the half. I want to play an even in this four minutes. Or let's, let's win these last four minutes. So, you know, it's a work in progress.
0: Dave, we're going to take one more quick break here. Come back with a fun fourth quarter for you. All right, we're back with the fourth quarter here. And Dave, I got to get your opinion on the Giannis game ball incident last (laughs) week against the Indiana Pacers. Um, I think our listeners who are definitely basketball junkies, I don't have to tell the full story, but uh, give us your perspective on what took place and what was your reaction just seeing all that go down?
2: Well, clearly there's one ball that they both want. And <laughs> I don't think any of the PR guys on either team figured out before the game ended, like, hey, this is going to happen. But to me, I, I look at it sort of like if a guy in baseball hits a, it's a big home run and the fan gets it, I, I think Giannis is the veteran player. So I would have looked on when Giannis found this out, you know, the answer to me should have been, hey, let's go get a picture of Oscar and I holding the ball together, the one ball, and me telling him maybe like the the home run hitter would do, hey, Oscar, I'll be happy to sign that ball for you, you know, and sign it like, hey, this is your first point heading towards a great NBA career. Or maybe he says, look, can I buy the ball from you? I'll donate to your favorite charity. I think there's a lot of things Or Oscar could have said, hey, I hope I, you know, can score 64. Can I sign the ball for you? I got my first one. I think it would have been a much better positive, you know, thing than both guys and teams fighting over over a ball, you know? You
1: know, to me, the whole thing was kind of bogus because, number one, he made a free throw. He didn't even make a bucket, Oscar, that is. And the other thing is – He had actually made a free throw in their previous game, which was the tournament championship game against the Lakers. But I guess it wasn't an official NBA Uh, point because it didn't count. So to me, it was like, all right, I agree with you. I hope when these two teams play again, they're playing back-to-back games January 1st and 3rd. Hopefully it'll be possible for them to make peace in some way. And we'll keep our eye out on those games and see. But it's like, and for Oscar to qualify for that ball, he needed a bucket, Dave, not going one for two from the line, especially when he did the same thing the previous game. Just but like Giannis,
2: you said. Giannis seems like a good guy. I would like him to kind of step forward and, you know, okay, this is a young guy, he got his first point, even if it's one point, you know, and and offer something or try and work out with, you know, try and work something out with Oscar that they right. both came out looking good.
1: Yeah.
0: I, th- I think he would have, but I think where it kind of became different and Giannis's eyes is it was also the single, uh, single game franchise record, right. not just a career right. high. So it kind of had kind of elevated just the status of that ball. Um, but I'm totally with you, Dave. I thought there were some, some great examples there. World B, did you have any thoughts on that incident?
3: I've, uh, I found it a whole lot about nothing. I know it <laughs> means something to each. I know it means yeah. something to you. So yeah. for them, it's something for me. It was a whole lot about nothing. Um, I disagree with Bruce. Your point, a point's a point. I, yeah. I, uh, I, I know the, the uh, tournament, the in-season tournament championship game didn't count. Well, I'm sure he scored a couple of points in the preseason. That didn't count. I don't think he has a ball from that. So it's, I think uh, whoever it belongs, I think Oscar has a good point about that. And, but you know what? That's a memorable ball for Giannis and, and then Milwaukee bucks. I mean, that's, yeah. that's a franchise, you know, record. So that's, that's worth a lot too, but I, I was able to go to sleep that night. <laughs>
0: <laughs> now, Dave, before we let you go here and end the show, uh, do you have maybe one good story for us on an on-the-court conflict that you can remember?
2: Oh, I got a couple of them, but uh, the one I would pick out would be um, I was with Houston, and Calvin Murphy was my teammate. Okay. And Calvin had gotten in a couple battles, and he always won all his battles. Um, and Calvin's philosophy was get the first punch in. You know, Calvin was like 5'9", but he was really strong. We are playing Atlanta, and they had a young forward named John Brown. John was maybe about 6'8", and somehow he and Calvin, there was a shot that went up, and and Brown, Brown and Calvin got kind of caught together somewhere off the baseline, and, and Brown turns around, and he, he raises his fist like this. He's got his fist and Calvin pops two jabs right in his face. Without even, I mean, it was like Muhammad Ali. And Brown goes down to his knees, but he's still got his fist like this. Calvin looks at our bench, looks back at Brown, and he pops him again in the face. Brown goes down to the floor. They brought a stretcher out because he knocked him out. And as he's going away, he still has his fist. You know, and it it was just back then it was the day where you could get away with almost anything with fights and stuff. But yeah, I mean, Murph used to hit guys and then he would run and you couldn't catch him. But this one, he just stayed because he got the first two in. And I don't think Brown was expecting, you know, a guy, Calvin Sides, he didn't know Calvin to hit him. So, yeah.
1: That's if you ever want to see some if guys, I mean Dave knows this, but you guys maybe know this too. If you ever want to see something amazing, go on YouTube and search for Calvin Murphy baton twirling. Oh yeah. He he used to be able to twirl a baton like you couldn't even believe how amazing it. And there there are some old clips of it on there. So for our listeners who might be a little bit younger than, you know, some of us here, uh, check that out because Calvin Murphy. people were scared shitless of that guy. I mean, what Dave's <laughs> describing, nobody wanted anything to do with Calvin Murphy. Yeah, and he
2: would throw that baton. He'd have the band come on. He would do some halftime things. He'd throw that baton up like 25 feet in the air, catch it behind his back, catch it in, in front. He, he was he was really a talented kid. And he was he was a, a great guy. He was a good teammate.
0: Well, Dave, we certainly appreciate your time here tonight and uh, I'm glad I just had you share one story because we got to save some stories for the next time <laughs> you're, you're generous enough to to join us on the 48 Minutes podcast, but it's great to have you back. We can't thank you enough for your support of the show. I think this was your, your third show with us and it's always third, great yeah. to see you. Yeah.
1: First, first three-time three guest, Dave.
2: You're you the first
1: three-time hey. guest.
2: Do I get a ball? Do I get somebody's you, ball? Yeah, <laughs> have my mic.
1: <laughs> I got, I got a water bottle. That's the best I can do. Thanks so much, Dave. Uh, it was
0: great uh, catching up with you and, and getting your perspective on on things going on around the league this season. And that will do it for this edition of the Forty Eight Minutes podcast on Believe presented by Bet Online. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll be back with you next week to be sure you're up to date in Forty Eight on all things around the association. Take care, everybody.